part of the fellowship. The fellowship. The fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the enemy. Pander at the pool of popularity. Or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes. Give until I drop. Preach until all know. And work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen. We're so glad you guys are here today. I want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest at Trinity Church. We're really glad you're here. You're joining us today in week three of a series called Inverted, Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. We'll explain what that's about in just a minute. If you have a Trinity this week, you have a form that looks like this. These are notes for our message today. They also are for your home groups this week for some prompts. So if you want to have those out, that'll help you track with us. We're going to be looking in the Bible today in the book called Daniel, Daniel chapter three. And that has been the, the text of this study is walking through what Daniel and his friends engaged and endured and how they were thriving in a place called Babylon. So we're excited to look at that together with you today. Um, Man, I just got to tell you, for those who weren't there yesterday, the men's breakfast went so well. And what a great event and a great job, not only by Jim and the rest of the men's team that were helping put that event on, so many different types of people serving in different ways. So I want to thank you for that. But also a good job for you who took the initiative to invite someone and to say, you know what? Um, the tickets are two for 20, so I'm not going by myself anyway. So who should I invite? And your thoughtful, strategic, uh, prayerful invitations. It's excited to see how God's going to bless that as seed was thrown into men's lives uh, lots of different ways. And so we're excited for that. So good job for those who put it on. And thank you for those of you who took that seriously as an entry point event. If you are also in the mode of just kind of going, you know, I really want to grow in this intentional influencer thing. I want to become someone who can have a conversation with someone who is in my relational world who might not believe the things that I believe, but I want to be able to talk to them without it turning into an argument and a debate every time. And if that's you, then next weekend is for you. Rick Langer is coming back out and he'll be preaching in the morning services. But that afternoon, he's going to be putting on something based on a book that he and a co-author wrote called Winsome Persuasion. And the name of what we're calling our thing is Winsome Workshop. That's next Sunday, the 28th at three to five o'clock. I think there's a an ad that'll come up on the screen. You can see it's also on the back of your Trinity this week, and you can be reminded. We'd love to have you come. It's a free event. Be across the way in 105, but we just want 
want to give you more tools to say, you know what, God, I want to engage the people in my world in conversations, but I, I don't know how to do it without just losing my mind. <laughs> That's basically what happens. So we want to do that in a way that God can be honored as well as in a way that actually speaks the truth and love. So that's our hope. You're in a series with us that um, we're diving into this book of Daniel because we believe it to be helpful that as we see a culture that tends to be walking more and more away from God's design and we tend to feel like we're walking against or, or running against the current of that reality, we want to be encouraged because there are numerous accounts in Scripture where people wanted to honor God and face situations much more extreme, much more challenging than us. But in what they did and how they chose to honor God, there are amazing principles, amazing examples that we can look at and say, God, I might not be facing death by a hot furnace, but I am facing challenges of if I make this decision, there will be a sequence of consequences. How do I have the courage? How do I be a brave person who wants to honor you in every part of my life? We're going to look at a narrative today. I just alluded to it that um, for some of you who've grown up in church, it was one of the top five flannel graph stories you ever saw, okay? And it makes for a great story because it's a very sensational story. And I mean that because it's so epic and we believe it to be absolutely true. So as we look at this narrative today of these three young men and a fiery furnace, I would want to encourage you, number one, if you know the story, do this. Rather than kind of jump to the conclusion, jump to the end, rather process, God, what are the principles about what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that I can apply to the situations I'm living in my life today? And God, do I believe you can do the impossible? Because these three men did Secondly, if you're here today and you've never heard this narrative before, you don't even know what a flannel graph is, okay? No problem. Um, I want to encourage you this. As we walk into this narrative today, it's going to seem like a tall tale. It will seem like, um, you know, what's, what's the big guy and his um, uh, uh, oxen named Blue? Who am I thinking of? Paul Bunyan, right? It's going to seem like Paul Bunyan's story to you. Like, ah, that maybe something happened. Maybe they got near some coals and were rescued, but nothing like what we're going to read. I want to encourage you to hear this today with an openness that would say, maybe there is a God and maybe he can do something well beyond what any of us can do. Because that's the nature of the narrative we're going to look at. One of the things we're going to talk about on a weekly basis through this series is just what I call four axioms, four truisms that we want to keep because we're going to see today there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension in not necessarily choosing to do the right thing, but how to do the right thing. That's what I really want to draw your attention to today. How do you do the right thing? Because to do the right thing the wrong way ultimately still doesn't help the cause of Jesus in your life and in others' lives around you. We want to do the right things the right way. So four axioms we're reminding ourselves of weekly. They're in your notes and on the screen. Number one, Christians have always lived in oppositional cultures. We read the book of Acts and we read the persecution against the church. We read church history and we just know it has always been a challenge. We're okay with that. We go into this with our eyes wide open going, God, this isn't new territory. It might be new for us in our lifetimes, in our country, but it's not new for you and for your people. You have things that you've shown them to help them walk, show us too. Number two, our enemy is Satan, not people. 
So many times issues, we will do this, we will put a face and a name to it and say, they are the problem. And I want you to know this, especially, I can't wait, next week when Rick comes, you're going to see the evolution of from chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of how God is on the move in a pagan king's life. And it would have been easy for Daniel and his friends to say, you are the problem. You are the source of the evil that we're facing and not to realize that there's a real Satan who stands behind him. Nebuchadnezzar was a pawn, just like everybody else in your life that represents a viewpoint and an attitude and a position against the word of God. God can redeem anybody. And the minute you give up on that, the minute you make them the enemy and you lose sight, of what is really going on in the situation. Number three, our, um, God calls us to rescue people, not the culture. So often what we'll do when we feel like things are moving in on us and, and, and we're getting pushed into a corner, we resort to going right to policy and we forget about the people that are in the way and in the distance in between that. And rather than go, God, how can we be influential? God, how can we be sources of light in these relationships? Rather than just say, we got to get a law passed. We lose perspective and we ultimately lose the battle. Number four, disagree with opinions, not people. It's so easy when you have someone in your relational world who is so adamantly against things that you really believe the Bible teaches very clearly. It's so easy to take those opinions and so connect them to their person that when you see them, all you see is that opinion. But I want to remind you, God is in the business of transforming lives. Look in the mirror. Look at some of the things that you held and you believed before you put your faith in Jesus. And just to kind of continue to think this person is the sum total of their opinions is to forget people change their minds. And so we want to say, I want to speak the truth in love, but not confuse the issues. You are not your opinion. You're something much more and something much more that God wants to redeem. These are four axioms we'll keep in mind to keep this reality as we walk through these narratives, keep the tension that's there and try to say, God, we want to walk the tight wire between these two extremes, the extreme of succumbing and just blending into the culture and the tension over here of just culture bashing. There's no value there. God, help us walk this line. Today, we're looking at this narrative of these three young men who chose to stand when everybody else fell. And to see their example today, we want to look at that. We want to... See, that's what identifies what is our now what statement this week. It's in your notes on the screen. We're to be a people who are resolute to honor God no matter what you face. Be resolute to honor God no matter what you face. I want to show you today that you can do the right thing the right way. Number one in your notes, there is a time to stand in order to honor God. There is a time to stand in order to honor God. Let's dive in. You're in Daniel chapter chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. Now you read that and you go, I don't use the measurement of cubits every day. So what are we talking about? Translated nine feet wide, 90 feet tall. Nine feet wide, 90 feet tall. That's the image you should have in your mind. And he set it up, set up the statue on a plain in Dura in the province of Babylon. He He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. 
So all those people and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So the narrative, the context is this. This king sets up this image 90 feet high, very skinny, just nine feet wide, and he's going to have a dedication ceremony. Okay. Things like that happen. There's more. Then the herald loudly proclaims. So he has a guy who's making this big announcement. Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Ah, it's more than a statue. It's a big idol. It's exactly what it is. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So both the command and the penalty are shared from the very beginning. Therefore, as soon as I heard the sound of all this music, all the nations and peoples of every language, so Nebuchadnezzar had the world in front of him, represented anyway, they fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of this music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. That's another way of saying there are some Jews that you have made our bosses. We don't like that. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve the God, your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned these three, and these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the music, he mentions all the instruments again, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown into a blazing furnace. And look at this last line. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And that's exactly what this narrative is all about. What God can rescue you from my hand? Here's a few things we need to establish today. First off, if you were here with us last week, you remember that God did this amazing thing for Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream and wanted its interpretation, but refused to tell his, quote, spiritual advisors even what the dream was, making it impossible then to know the dream and its interpretation. God gives Daniel that ability to know the dream, see exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his mind, and then tell him what the dream meant. Powerful display of God's supernatural power. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he praises the God who is the revealer of mysteries. That was chapter two. Chapter three, he sets up a mammoth idol, okay? And what you're gonna see is, well, that's a pretty big discrepancy. He was praising Yahweh at the end of chapter two. Chapter three, he's setting up an idol that everyone would worship that, not him. Looks like there's a problem, absolutely. And what you're going to see next week when Rick comes is you're gonna see this amazing evolution of what God is doing as a work of faith in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And by the way, before we get too angry and frustrated with Nebuchadnezzar's reactions, think of yours. Think of the things that it took for you to finally put your faith in Jesus and there was a lot of waffling. There was, okay, God, I'm gonna believe you for this issue, but not for my dating relationship. Okay, God, I'm going to believe you for this issue, but not for how it affects me on the job. God, I'm going to believe you for this issue, but not how it affects my relationship with my parents. 
Okay, we, we didn't kind of come and give everything all at once. God was revealing himself to us and we began to respond at various levels. And today you'll see another degree of response. But the inconsistency is obvious. Worshiping God one week, putting up his own idol the next. I wanted to show you a picture that would give you a little bit of understanding of what the idol could have looked like dimensionally. Take a look up on the screen. This is the victory column in Berlin, Germany. But I bring it only to say that's about the right dimension, nine feet across, 90 feet high. That could be seen everywhere. Okay, that's the idea, just to understand. And interestingly enough, sometimes when you've heard this story before, and and again, remember my mom was the flannel graph teacher extraordinaire. I saw every one of these. They would always have this statue kind of looking like Nebuchadnezzar. But I don't know if you read what I just read. It never said that. It just said it was a really tall, gold-plated statue people were supposed to bow down to. If nothing else, to bow down to it would give this sense of, Nebuchadnezzar, we are bowing down to your power and your kingdom, at least that. We're not saying that it makes it any less worse because it wasn't an image of him, but I don't think that's really what the text says. Now, to show you where this was at, take a look at the map. This is where this um, statue was set up, was in the plain of Dura. If you look down to the left, you'll see Jerusalem, and almost dead east is Babylon, and you'll notice up from there north where the red circle is, that's the plain of Dura. So that's where this was, was set up. Now, officials of all types are invited to the dedication of this image, including the exiles that we met a few weeks ago, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or known here in chapter three as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's the obvious question. I loved it. Even one of our high school students asked me a few weeks ago, where's Daniel? Of which the name of the book is named after. Why isn't Daniel in this story? And I actually think that's a great question. You might have been wondering the same thing as we're walking through. Daniel 3, no Daniel, okay? But here's what I want to throw out to you. I actually love the fact that Daniel's not there. I think there's some very easy ways to understand why Daniel might not have been there. Remember when it mentioned all the different roles? Like here were all the different offices in in the, the Babylonian Empire All of those people are expected, not just invited, but probably commanded to show up, and they do. Daniel's role was none of those things. He was elevated, we saw at the end of chapter two, to some almost like prime minister role. He is way at the top. There could have been a good chance that Nebuchadnezzar had him doing something else somewhere else in the kingdom. That's not a stretch for me. I don't think he was somewhere rolled up in a ball in a corner afraid of the king. Look at chapters four and five and six, and we'll find out that's not his posture. But in this case, it's these three, and this is what I love about this. In the other narratives in chapters one and two, remember, these friends are always, they have the character of bravery and courage to walk God's way in a very pagan land. But they're always behind Daniel. Chapter one, it's Daniel who's the spokesperson talking to their um, overseer about their diet. Chapter two, Daniel's the one before the king who's asking them, pray for me that God would give me the ability to do this thing, but he's the one who keeps showing up before the king. This time it's just them. They have followed his lead well, and now they're on their own, and guess what? They continue to follow the example that God would have for them, even if Daniel's not around, and it's a great part of that story. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wants more than people just admiring the statue. He literally wants them to bow down and worship. It's very clear what this attitude and issue is. And that, interestingly enough, obviously brings in a spiritual component. To bow down to Nebuchadnezzar is not just to kind of give him allegiance, it's to say, you are this supreme being who happens to govern the world right now. 
And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was after. It's noted, I thought this was fascinating, that it says that people from nations and peoples of every language were there. This is not just these three Jewish men dropped into a homogeneous culture of Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar's conquered the world, and he has people from every kind of people group here. And here's what's fascinating regarding to the text. When he says, bow down before me, and they must have represented all kinds of non-gods from cultures they came from, not a one of them, according to this record, not a one of them stands. Every one of them falls, except these three men. You know, God had communicated clearly to his people since the very beginning that their worship of him was meant to be exclusive. It wasn't worship Yahweh and, it was always worship Yahweh only. This is one passage that shows that from Leviticus 26, verse 1. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I, Yahweh, am your God. Exclusively. I am the only God worth worshiping because I'm the only true God. Everything else is an invention of someone else. And I want you to see today, I want you to imagine the scene. They've heard it very clearly, not just the command, the herald, remember, was shouting this out, not just the command to bow, but what would happen if you didn't? The penalty was equally communicated. And so imagine as all the instruments begin, and whether you were close to the statue or whether you were very far away, at least faintly you could hear the music ramping up, and everybody, everybody gets in this prostrate position down before on the ground, except these three. It would have been as obvious as the day is long. Everybody finds their way to the ground, these three stand. The interesting thing is, you know what the text doesn't say? The text doesn't say they stood there with raised fist. The text doesn't say they kind of took this position, this defensive position, and growled a lot. They just stood. We're not gonna bow. That dishonors what God has clearly told us to do, but we also don't have to be defiant. We're just not gonna bow. I love this narrative for so many reasons. And to me, that's one of the most powerful parts is not just what they did, but how they did it. What I love about it is this, they, they would have stood out as they stood up. It was very obvious. They would have stood out as they stood up. And they were definitely not afraid to. I want to take a couple of minutes today. I want to pull away from the narrative just for a second. I want to clarify some comments I made at the beginning of the series because I feel like I was incomplete in my description and therefore rightly so. Um, I've probably left something unsaid that needs to be said and it's this. When we began the series, I talked about that so often when we face opposition, we're very quick to abandon relationships and just jump to the end game. And for us, the end game is to protest and picket so that our way happens. I feel like we do that far too much. But what I didn't mean to indicate was that there's never a time, especially when all relational attempts have been tried, that there's never a time to stand, because there absolutely is. There absolutely is a time to say, God, I'm going to honor you. I choose to do the right thing. I'm choosing to do it the right way. And the attempts I've had to deal with people in a kind and loving way have failed. Now there's no further I can go. Last weekend, we focused our attention on the sanctity of life, and rightly so. It's a great time in our annual calendar just to say, God, you value life from its inception to our deaths. 
everything in between, we want to honor that as well. But one of the things that we didn't take time to talk about last week was the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was his weekend that we celebrated as well, and many of you had a day off on Monday to commemorate that. And I just want to tell you, as I have read more and looked more at his life and his leadership, I am so impressed, so impressed in the way that he said, God, there's something that's very unjust and wrong, but rather than be defiant, we simply want to say we want to show that there's something wrong, and we want to do it in a way that relationships can be intact. Look at this quote. This is from Time Magazine back in the 50s. It was reprinted as a result of Martin Luther King weekend, and look at what he said. This is him saying this. Our use of passive resistance in Montgomery. Montgomery was all about a bus um, uh, kind of peaceful protest. They weren't going to ride the bus because of the way it all began at the Rosa Parks situation, the way that people were treated. So he says, this, this passive resistance is not based on resistance to get rights for ourselves, but to achieve, watch this, to achieve friendship with the men who are denying us our rights and to change them through friendship and a bond of Christian understanding before God. That is powerful. And that is easy to say when you're not in it. That is hard to live when you're walking it. And I am so impressed by that posture and that leadership to say, God, we want to do the right thing and we want to do it the right way. And our hope is that there's still a way for transformational influence to happen in the way that we walk and in the way that we live. There was a time then and there is a time now to stand up for those things, for those people who are oppressed, both here and around the world. And to do it in the context of God, can there be a relational way that we can be a people of influence? You got to remember, one of the most significant dis differences between our narrative and that of Daniel and his friends is that we are not exiles in some other place. We're citizens in our own country. That's a difference. And there's a way to walk appropriately within that citizenship. So we as a people, as Trinity Church... We want to be a people who continue to represent God's care and concern for the victims of domestic abuse, for the victims of abuse and neglect, for the victims of sexual assault, for the victims of who are not even yet born and cannot speak for themselves, for others who are discarded because of age or disability, for others who are discriminated against because of their race or ethnicity, and like the Old Testament taught us, to pursue the, the cause of the orphan, the widow, and the alien. You see, I'm not just someone saying this as though it's what Todd thinks. This is what our elder board has said. Just a couple of weeks ago, we finalized what we call our ends. Our ends would basically be, what is Trinity Church even on the planet for? What is our purpose? To what end are we laboring? And of four, we, we only have four of them. There's not 80, there's only four of the four this is one of the four. It said this. It's in your notes on the screen. We will demonstrate God's love through the inclusion of and ministry to the marginalized. We will be a people who do not forget those who are kicked to the curb. And that is a way. And sometimes we do it with the simple love of Jesus. Other times we do it when there's resistance. We do the right things the right way. But there is a time to stand, just like these three young men faced. For those who've had question about where I stand on that, all I wanted to say was wait till chapter three. Because there, there is occasion to need to do that. 
the back to the narrative, the first part of the narrative ends with most likely jealous people who were frustrated that God had put these, or that Nebuchadnezzar had put these exiles over them. And so they, they tattled to the king. The king calls them into his presence. He does an interesting thing. Just upon them saying that, he could have said, you heard the command, you heard the, the um, punishment, in the fire you go. But he gives them another chance. We're gonna strike up the band one more time and we'll give you another chance right here, right now. I'm gonna look away the first time, but this time I'm gonna give you a chance to get it right. The interesting thing is that he knows this is a spiritual contest. You heard it in that last phrase. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand. And it's with that taunt that he's about to find out that there is a God who is able to rescue. Number two in your notes, look for Jesus to show up when you're resolute in following him. Look for Jesus to show up when you're resolute in following him. Continuing in chapter three, verse 16, they've been given this ultimatum. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. We read this narrative, and for many of us, our understanding of God doing God-sized things, that's kind of where the story ends. And they died. The Bible records a very different story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Well, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even a smell of fire on them. It's like they'd never even been to the barbecue. They didn't even smell like smoke. So powerful. So let's do this today. Call this what it is. A supernatural work of God, a miracle. Here's the problem. Sometimes we will call things that naturally happen in our world miracles. And I think we do that disservice. It can be a powerful thing that blows your mind. The fact that when I put in my car key and it turns on and gets me here is a miracle to me. I do not for a moment understand how it all works. I'm just glad it gets me from A to B. Okay, that's not a miracle though. And an engineer who puts the car together could easily tell me this makes this happen and gets you there. Nobody can tell you how God has three men thrown into a furnace and they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. That is a supernatural act of God. And that's what happens in this narrative. God shows up 
demonstrably to do what only God can do. They're thrown into this fire, and I love, I want you to see their comments before this actually happens. Look what they said. They said that God is absolutely able to save us from your hand. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you have some great degree of power? Let me rephrase. God has given you what you have. And therefore, God is able to save us. We believe him to be God, not like your non-gods. He is powerful and unlike anything you can understand. But even, well, watch this. But even if he chooses not to rescue us, even then, we will not bow. Do you see this great theology that's going on in their answer? On the one hand, when they're threatened, this is their first response. God is able. God is able to do what only God can do. We believe that, and they weren't just giving that, the, that theology lip service because they were about to find out if God could really do that. Do you believe that God can do what only God can do? Because these three men did. But then they back it up and they say this, but even if he chooses not to, Not because he's not able, but watch this. Even if he chooses not to, what could that mean? Why could God ever choose not to save his people? Why could God choose not to do the supernatural thing you've been praying for? Here's why. In the very limited perspective, if I've ever prayed with you about something that you're facing that requires a supernatural act of God. May it be a healing, physical healing, maybe it's something relationally that you just cannot fix on your own, whatever it may be. My prayer has evolved to always be the same. God, from our limited vantage point, it makes total sense that we would ask for this. We can't see how you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I don't have that perspective. All I get to see is in real time what God's doing. I have no idea what the next chapter shows. So God, I'm gonna ask you, knowing you could, but if you choose not to, I believe it's with purpose that you're actually doing something instead. That was their posture God, I know you can, but even if you choose not to, watch this, no matter what, we won't dishonor him. No matter what, we won't dishonor him, even though he could powerfully intervene, if he chooses not to, we still won't bow our knee to you. What a great attitude. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see the way a commentary author said it far better than I ever could. It's in your notes, or I mean, it's on the screen. Look what he said. He said, the courteous but determined refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be carefully observed. They had obeyed the powers that be, watch this, as far as conscience permitted. They journeyed to the plain of Dura, and right at the point where their conscience shouted no further, watch this, they rejected the temptation to be arrogant in their nonconformity. They didn't raise the fist. They didn't pitch a fit. They just simply stood. As Daniel before them had been courteous in his request to follow his convictions, now these three verbally acknowledged Nebuchadnezzar as king while committing their ultimate allegiance to the king of kings alone. So well said. So in your notes, let this be our posture moving forward as we strive to live right side up in an upside down world, courteous, 
but determined. Courteous, but determined. You can do the right thing the right way. But being a person who's thoughtful and even loves people who are against you. By the way, that's nothing new, right? You heard Jesus say that once. Love your enemies and treat them with kindness. This is not new to us. It's just hard to live. Courteous, but determined. In this instant, God shows up literally. When you look at this story and you look as these men are thrown in, right? You would expect that's, that, that's incineration. That, there's this, it's over. And we all hang our heads and we feel bad that such a thing would happen. But here's the wild thing. Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he sees motion. You would have expected zero motion. That thing is so hot, you're just incinerated. He's watching people walk around. And they're not screaming They're not even trying to get out. He has to invite them to come out. What? And then he sees this fourth figure. Now, very easily, and he even, in the text, he alludes to that this, you'll see in a minute, that this is an angel of God. Yes, very well could have been. I would even say this is what theologians call the Christophany, meaning it's an appearance of the second member of the Trinity before he ever was born in a manger in Bethlehem, that Jesus showed up to rescue them. Can't even imagine being Shadrach. Probably holding your breath as you're launched into these flames and then to realize you're not dead and to realize your friends aren't dead and to realize there's this being with you and what kind of conversation was they have had. When you look at this passage, one of the things that we have launched here at Trinity Church, our mission is to be rooted in Jesus reaching our worlds. When you live a life that is rooted in Jesus, I don't know that you'll ever experience this same problem or this same circumstance, but I do know this, that in the moments when you think your whole world is caving in, in the moments that you think all hope is lost, that when your roots are sunken deeply into your Savior, I don't know if you think about that word very much, Savior, that means someone who saves you from something. When your roots are deeply attached to your Savior, it doesn't matter what is going on around you, there is a peace And there is a strength that you somehow walk in and you know. And I only say that because I know it's true. It's been my testimony and countless others in this room. God shows up, Jesus shows up in this instance and he rescues them. Nebuchadnezzar cannot begin to fathom what's going on. Question for you today, have you ever been in the mouth of the fiery furnace? I know not literally, none of us can even imagine this kind of challenge and how you and I would have responded. But have you been in circumstances like it? Meaning that there was an an ultimatum. Maybe it was something with friends, maybe it was peers. Maybe there's a group of people you really wanted to impress, but to be acceptable to them, to be included, you had to do something that very clearly God would say no to. And you knew that if you didn't, you were gonna be excluded. When you face that fiery furnace, did you stand or did you bow? Or maybe it was an authority over your life. I heard an amazing story after first service of one of our own who worked Department of Health, and she was told, 
You've got to, in the midst of all your counseling with women, you've got to counsel them inclusive with the idea of abortion. She said, I can't. I cannot do that. And as a result, she was demoted. She was shipped around from office to office six months at a time until finally she had reached an age where she could retire, and she did. Here's what she told me. That sounds like such a sad story, right? Here's what she told me. She said, Todd, it was amazing when I retired. Between my retirement and my husband's Social Security, I was making more retired than I did when I was working. And then she said this, as I was getting shipped around, which I thought was like the worst kind of thing, never just be able to be there. She said, people would come up to me and they would say, I don't know why you're here, but I do want you to know, I think you're here for me. You see, from our limited vantage point, all is lost because we said, God, I want to do the right thing the right way. Consequences will come. Don't be blind to that. But in the middle of them, can we believe that God will rescue and God will still work out his perfect will? They stood out as they stood up. And as a result, God did an amazing thing on their behalf. Here's what I want you to know. Even in the times when you have stood up, you would testify today that you knew the presence of God. You knew that you could sleep at night. You could put your head on the pillow and fall asleep because You were living for the audience of one. In the times when you bowed, I have. I have caved to pressure. I have caved to fear. I want you to know this. There is always hope. Because by confessing that as sin, by seeking God's forgiveness, God can not only restore, but then ultimately God can prepare me for the next time I'm going to face a furnace issue. You can walk forward out of that. Wild to me, this narrative and how we see God doing amazing things. Don't you love the end? Not only did they, they didn't just survive, right? They did just by the hair of their chinny chin chin. They didn't come out with 90 degree burns or 90% of their body covered in third degree burns. They did none of that. They were rescued and didn't even smell like they'd been near smoke. God is able to save in God-sized ways. The Bible testifies to this truth. And good for us to believe it as well. Finally, number three today. God is on display like no other time when you trust him in crisis. God is on display like no other time when you trust him in crisis. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar, now they're out of the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him. Look at this. Look at what he's saying. God is amazing. And look at their faith. That's what he's testifying to. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, my command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except Yahweh. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. That's like a total thing for him, right? Remember that last week? It's always the punishment. I don't know what happened to the furnace, but it's usually cut into pieces, piles of rubble. That's how it goes. Watch what he says, though, for no other God can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar could not deny what he'd just seen. And remember, all of his cronies gather around. They're all taking this in. They've just seen the impossible that God did on these three men's behalf. 
and they're forever changed. You'll watch, you'll watch this Nebuchadnezzar who was so fishy from chapters two to three. You're gonna see him change again in chapter four. So much to the point, by the way, what God is doing and how he is showing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that Nebuchadnezzar actually writes part of the Bible. Chapter four is coming next week. This week, as a result of these things, as a result of these testimonies, we ought to believe the account that Nebuchadnezzar proclaims and be resolute to honor God no matter what, no matter what you face. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so very, very much for this powerful narrative. God, a narrative meant to give us hope, a narrative meant to instruct us that we ought never count you out, and that we want to be a people who would believe that you can do God-sized things. And even if you choose not to, we will choose to do what honors you. God, help us live in that tension this week. Help us be a people who are resolute to say, God, I believe you for what seemingly is impossible. But with, all, with you, all things are possible. And even if you don't show up in that way, God, I'm going to choose to honor you nonetheless. You might be here today and you would say, you know, Todd, I've never, never trusted God for my rescue. I've never faced a a fiery furnace, but I've faced a lot. And I'm kind of a wreck if I'm really honest with myself. I might put it together, look fine in the mirror, but inside I'm falling apart. If that's you and you're here today and you've never responded to the invitation of Jesus to be forgiven and to know his love, this is what you would start with. You'd A, admit Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that you have tried living life on your own and you failed like everyone does. You need something different. Be believe. Believe that Jesus, this Jesus we've talked about, the Jesus who entered into the flames, believe that he's the only savior available. He lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, was raised to life on the third day supernaturally. Believe that Jesus is the one who can rescue and see his choose. As Jesus laid out an example for us in the Gospels and throughout the writings of the Bible, believe or choose to say, Jesus, I want to walk your way. And I want to be a person who's not just rescued, I want to be involved in other people's rescue as well. Father, we love you. Thank you for these narratives that are so helpful to us. Help us live with resolute hearts this week. Help us be brave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.